In today's episode of the ESG Beat, we will speak with Professor Melissa Murray from NYU School of Law. Professor Murray is a leading expert in family law, constitutional law, and reproductive rights and justice. In addition to her award-winning legal research, Professor Murray has written for popular publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post. She also shares her insights with the public and regularly appears as a guest commentator on numerous media outlets, including NPR, CNN, ABC, MSNBC, and PBS. Today we will discuss Professor Murray's article, Consequential Sex, Me Too, Masterpiece Cake Shop, and Private Sexual Regulation. In that article, Professor Murray explores how private actors across the ideological spectrum have sought to fill the regulatory void caused by the state's failure to regulate sexuality. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Professor Murray. Thank you for having me. So I'm so excited to share your work and your article with our audience, Consequential Sex, Me Too, Masterpiece Cake Shop, and Private Sexual Regulation. And in that article, you draw a parallel between the way that both conservatives and progressives are addressing sexuality. Of course, their aims are very different, but can you identify a root cause for this phenomenon? And and can you unpack that for us? Well, so first, let me just admit that the idea of Masterpiece Cake Shop, the Me Too movement, and private sexual regulation are probably not Uh, things that people saw being in conversation with each other. I I think when I wrote this paper, my husband remarked that this was two great tastes that no one ever saw coming together. So (laughs) I I get that it's a little discordant. But in the paper, what I'm trying to say is that um, each of these instances, uh, the request for religious accommodations in Masterpiece Cake Shop and the Me Too movement and the use of social media and the press to identify, call out, and punish episodes of systemic sexual harassment in the workplace, all evince an interest in what I call private sexual regulation. And and specifically, this idea that there is some gap that the state is not filling in the regulation of sex and sexuality. And these private actors, religious believers on the one hand, the activists of the Me Too movement on the other have stepped into that void to privately regulate in the state's absence. And so the root cause in all of it is simply this sense that in some regard, the state has failed in some way. And so in the paper, I unpack it by explaining that over the last 60, 70 years, we've seen a phenomenal change in the way that sex has been regulated in the United States. You know, Historically, sex was regulated either under marriage or under the rubric of crime. And you know, that's receded a lot in interesting ways. Um, there's no longer that sort of stark division between sex that is good and therefore marital and sex that is bad and therefore criminal. And, and there's, I think, more of a spectrum of how we would think about sex and certainly greater tolerance of sex outside of marriage. And and you don't have the state playing as thick a role in the regulation. Like there's no one telling you if you're going to have sex, you have to be married. And if you don't, you're going to be treated like a criminal. Um, But that I think is a scary proposition, certainly for some people. And I think religious believers have bemoaned these changes as the onset 
of an incredibly secular culture in which anything goes and where sex has no consequences. On the flip side, I think, you know, the activists of the Me Too movement would be very excited about some of the liberalization of sexual mores that's happened over the last 70 years and certainly the greater recognition of sexual assault and workplace harassment. But I think they too are troubled by the fact that even as we recognize that sexual assault can be pervasive and workplace harassment can be per pervasive, there has been very little effort to actually remedy these things, at least through law. And so they too have a sense that the state has failed because the state, in their view, has failed to provide meaningful checks to this kind of harmful sexual behavior. And without those meaningful checks, you could get the sense that sexual assault, workplace harassment has no consequences, right? So on the one hand, you have you know, the very conservative, religious conservative, social conservative saying that there's sex with no consequences. And on the other side, you also have maybe more liberal activists saying there's sex with no consequences, just different types of sex that they're concerned with. And so I think the root cause of all of this is some sense that the state should be doing something and it isn't. And they are stepping in to remedy that void that the state's absence has created. Okay, so now that you've given us a really um, clear understanding of why both progressives and conservatives have stepped into what you've identified as this regulatory void, let's move from the why to the how. How have they done this? And despite, of course, being poles apart on their stated ends, as, as uh, you, know, you noted, you in your paper argued that progressives and conservatives are using strike, strikingly similar tactics to regulate section sexuality. Um, it seems like an odd comparison at the outset. Uh, can you help us understand these parallels? So I wanna make clear, I'm not saying that they are exact analogs because I think they are very different both in their animating impulses and even in, in the ways that they pursue their aims. But there are some shared features that I think are worth highlighting. Mm -hmm. um, first and foremost, I, I think Me Too is probably the easiest because it's the one with which we are most familiar. And the Me Too movement, um, you know, again, recognizing this gap in accountability for those who are pervasive perpetrators of workplace harassment or sexual harassment, the Me Too movement used social media and the press as a way to try in the court of public opinion things that actually were not reaching a legal court. So they would dox people on Twitter. Um, they would call out individuals in the press. Um, they would be very public, ironically, in sort of stating their objections to the kind of conduct they found objectionable. And they would use these social media platforms or the press as a way of calling it out. And they pressed and often got the kind of changes that they sought, whether it was changes in the workplace um, in terms of you know, a shift to a zero tolerance culture in particular workplaces, or even the um, firing, quite high profile hiring of many men in some of these places. So I'm thinking, you know, Matt Lauer's experience is, is exemplary on that point. Um, so it's, it's the use of different media, I think, or different tactics, but the idea here is using these different platforms, they're able to assert their own view of what appropriate sex and sexuality looks like. And in their case, it was non-coercive without the clear differences in power dynamics. And so 
it is at once a substantive outcome they are seeking, but also a kind of normative shift in our understanding of what is or is not acceptable sexual conduct. On the other side, um, with I think the those seeking religious accommodations, they're not using social media or the press to frame their objections. Instead, what they are using is the process of religious accommodation. So this is a legal process by which um, in certain cases, um, there is either a statute like the Religious Freedom, um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or built into state level anti-discrimination statutes. Um, there might be opportunities for individuals who are religious believers to state their objections to the application of what is otherwise an, a generally applicable statute and be relieved of the application of that statute because of their religious views that, you know, this is also obviously shaped by the First Amendment as well. And so Masterpiece Cake Shop is a terrific example of this. Colorado has a standard anti-discrimination statute that prohibits discrimination in places of public accommodation on the basis of, among other things, sexual orientation. And these two gentlemen go to this bakery seeking a cake to celebrate their same-sex marriage. Uh, the baker, Jack Phillips, says, uh, I can provide you with a cake for a birthday party. I can provide you with a cake for a bar mitzvah. I cannot, because of my religious beliefs, provide you with a cake to celebrate a gay wedding because I believe that gay marriage is a sin. And if I bake this cake, I would be complicit in that sin. And so the couple files uh, anti-discrimination charge with the Colorado Human Rights Commission. It proceeds through the Colorado courts and Throughout the state level proceedings, um, the couple wins, like the application of this anti-discrimination law means that this individual cannot discriminate against them simply because they want a cake for their same sex wedding. Um, it gets all the way to the Supreme Court. The court never really fully resolves the question. It punts on this, but it is an open question whether the First Amendment or the question of religious liberty is permitted to trump these other commitments to anti-discrimination law. And so the way I frame it in the paper, there are ways in which this is similar to what's happening in the Me Too movement, um, not because of the use of particular media, but this idea that you could view what is happening, whether it's the recognition of same-sex marriage or changing sexual mores around homosexuality and say, in my bakery, I'm gonna pretend it's 1954. Like I want to go all the way back to when a time when the state actually criminally proscribed same-sex sexuality. And in my bakery, that's where that's going to happen. So he's asking for this religious accommodation using this established legal tool, um, but doing it for the purpose of articulating his own particular preferred normative view of what appropriate sex and sexuality is. And in this case, it is marital but heterosexual. Um, and it does not admit the possibility of same-sex intimacy. And so that's where I think they're both the same. They're doing wildly different things using wildly different platforms, but at their core, each group is seeking to articulate and to gain, I think, traction for, in a particular space, their own preferred vision of what acceptable sex and sexuality is. And, um... Thank you for that. And from a from a corporate law perspective, of course, um, as we've uh, discussed in other episodes of the ESG Beat, 
uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop, you know, eliminates the distinction between the values of the individual owners of the firm and the values of uh, the firm itself. Um, and so, you know, thereby threatening the corporate form. Um, and we're seeing more of that as well. Um, but Hobby I Lobby is a perfect example of that, the idea that the Greens personal views actually trumps this idea of a corporate entity and you know and you know query whether that's only the case for a closely held corporation right. like Hobby Lobby or Conestoga Wood or whether you might understand it more broadly with a larger corporation or even one that's publicly held. Right and a lot of um, you know a lot of scholars have uh, um, address that issue, um, but a more challenging issue that you address in your paper is sort of the, the concern that we might have with these private actors stepping into the role that government traditionally has. Um, and so, uh, you know, but why is this any different Historically, private actors have always uh, stepped in to fill regulatory voids, particularly in cases when our social norms are still evolving on issues. What's so different about private regulation and Masterpiece Cake Shop and Me Too, and, and maybe in other areas? Um, is it different today? You know, I, I don't know that it's arguably different. Um, and I'm not suggesting in the paper that it is different. I, I do think in the paper I am arguing that it requires our attention, right? And, and that it is not necessarily an unalloyed good, nor is it obviously absolutely terrible for us, right? So, you know, we've seen this before. I mean, a great example would be um, in the period in California and throughout the country before Obergefell legalized same-sex marriage, you saw lots of private corporations, even before state governments began recognizing same-sex relationships, private corporations would by providing um, employees in same-sex relationships with uh, health insurance for right. being able to share health insurance benefits or you're like denominating them domestic partners even at a time when that nomenclature did not exist at mm -hmm. the state level. And, and it was incredibly important, um, not just for the individuals receiving that kind of recognition and the kind of private benefits that came with that recognition, but because it actually laid a foundation that you could then later use when the states were trying to sort of expand their understanding of relationship recognition. So, you know, in California, for example, in, you know, the 2000s, when they were shifting from a very limited model of domestic partnership to a more expansive understanding of domestic partnership, many people pointed to the fact that California corporations had already done this. It was of no moment that the sure. state would make this change. So, in a lot of ways, private enterprise can be a leader that lays a foundation for subsequent state action in the same vein. So, and it may be progressive and it, or it may not be, but you know, they can lead in either direction. So that doesn't trouble me. Um, and I think we've seen that before. We've also seen, however, private actors actually resisting the state, not pulling the state along, but actually challenging the state. And you know, a terrific example is the situation following 1954 and Brown versus Board of Education, where the Supreme Court demands that the South desegregate its public schools. And what you have in response is widespread recalcitrance punctuated by private actors deciding that not only are they not going to follow this public mandate, they will complement their intransigence with the creation of private schools 
where there will be no integration. So they create, they fill a void, right? Mm -hmm. By providing a private space where segregation is not only tolerated, it is celebrated. So again, like it can go in either direction, but you know, I think the point of this paper is to understand Me Too and Masterpiece Cake Shop to both be doing the same kind of thing. They are both efforts to privately, through private action, articulate a set of sexual norms and mores that they think are distinct from what the state is currently articulating as acceptable. Mm-hmm. And thank you so much for noting the um, uh, how private actors can help uh, sort of pave the way for regulation and section sexuality. And, and as we've as we've seen in other episodes, for so many uh, social issues and environmental issues, um, Levi's Strauss comes to mind as a terrific example of that, particularly in the domestic partners uh, partnership benefits. Uh, and in voting. I mean, Levi Strauss and Patagonia have created this campaign, Time to Vote, where they give their employees time off for voting. And it's been cited as people have tried to seek a kind of broader public platform from both state legislatures and Congress, making election day a federal holiday or a state holiday that would facilitate voting um, by individuals who are not employees of those two companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you do end your article with a reference to John Stuart Mill uh, and a warning of, you know, the tyranny of the majority. Uh, is there is there any way in which the growing power of private actors to regulate sexual norms, uh, any way that causes you concern and, and why? I mean, I think we should be concerned um, in any situation where individuals who are not necessarily accountable to the populace are crafting or shaping norms in ways that are thickly felt by all of us. Um, you know, I think in this paper, I'm perhaps most skeptical of Masterpiece Cake Shop because, you know, in my view, it is one thing to suggest that religious observance requires an accommodation from the state. Um, I think it's another to say that religious observance requires accommodation from the state and it will also impact third persons, right, or third parties. Um, and, and, and impact the exercise of those third-party rights. I, I think that's really different. Um, by the same token, I think there should be some discussion and maybe even critique of the Me Too movement's use of private means of calling people out or making people accountable because it does happen in a vacuum. Like, you know, the court of public opinion is not a court of law. and the same kinds of transparency or procedural protections that would ordinarily be provided in a legal forum are not provided on Twitter, right? And, and the consequences can be really, really damaging when you layer on top of it, um, not just the sort of gender power dynamics, but maybe race and class, like those can ma- be magnified in circumstances where there is no mechanism to call people to account or even to resist um, an inaccurate or misleading account of, of whatever is being charged. And so, you know, it, it is not to sort of single out religious accommodations as unduly prob- troublesome or problematic and, you know, Me Too is perfect and great. I think in any situation where you have private actors stepping in, you have to be mindful, you know, and here is a terrific example as, you know, we begin the process of reopening our schools. Um, You know, I've been living in New York City for the last couple of years and, you know, 
I have noticed that, you know, there is obviously a very stark difference between the resources that public schools bring to bear on particular problems and those that private schools have to bring to bear on those same problems. Reopening is obviously going to magnify those. But even within public schools, I think you can see the differences that privatization or access to the opportunity for privatization can create. So, you know, for example, my kid goes to a private school in, I think, a very wealthy section of New York. I'm one that's sort of near a university, a world-class university. Um, our school PTA reopening team included a parent who is an epidemiologist, a parent who is a virologist, a parent who is an architect who could actually sit down with the plans and map out how people were going to flow through the school. Is that different from the way reopening plans are happening in other parts of the city? I mean, you, know, you also have to sort of understand that although there is a centralized New York City Department of Education, each individual school has been vested with a wide degree of autonomy to craft a reopening plan that is suitable for its needs. Given that kind of autonomy, are you going to see the same kind of reopening plan and the thought that goes into it in a school that is not near a world-class university where the parents are not professional health professionals or epidemiologists or architects. And that can create widely variant reopening plans even within the same public school district. That is a form of privatization, mm -hmm. right? And, and a way in which these parents at the very fancy public school are stepping into the void that the state has created by not having a lot of guidance filling it with the kind of guidance they want to see, but it actually exacerbates inequities in other parts of the city because other schools aren't equipped to fill the void in the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And certainly in the COVID-19 era, we've seen companies step in to fill all sorts of voids uh, in ways that are very troubling, including providing uh, you know, PPP equipment um, to, uh, where the government cannot and uh, basic things such as uh, public health and education where uh, the government has not been able to step up and step in um, and private actors are filling that void. So I share, I share your uh, concern. It also, I think, points to another vulnerability. Like, you know, if we become accustomed to allowing private enterprise to fill what are actually basic subsistence needs, things that we would expect the state to provide, uh, you, know, you know, do we allow? Do we let the state off too easily? Right. I mean, so, so that is a fear too. I mean, it, this is kind of like in the 2000s when um, George W. Bush had this whole sort of public welfare plank that really depended on private charity to step in, like a public-private partnership, he called it. You know, that's fine, but if you think that some of these things are basic goods that the state should be furnishing, maybe it's not great that we are relying on private charity or charitable enterprises or private enterprise more generally to provide them. Maybe this is something, whether for equity reasons or for other reasons, that the state can and must provide instead. Yeah, and your, um, so many of your comments uh, echo some of the things that uh, Amy Weaver, for, uh, the General Counsel of Salesforce has said with respect to, um, you know, stepping into the government's roles and both uh, Salesforce's embrace of that role and its concern that we're letting government off too easily. So, so thank you for that. Um, I, I always like to end the ESG beat with a magic wand and a crystal ball. And uh, you are one of the, the uh, few people in this world that I wish I could give a 
hundred magic wands too. Um, and, but I but given to make dinner, <laughs> <laughs> like a homemade meal. <laughs> if uh, if I could only give you one, um, and if you could wave it to change one thing about the power of private actors to regulate norms, uh, what would that be? So I, I think. The, the magic wand that I would wave across any kind of private enterprise trying to step in and fill the role of the state is, um, I guess, a private wand of equity that the private resources could be shared broadly with everyone as opposed to being isolated in particular pockets of the public sphere that are either where they exist or that are sort of positioned to have more of them. So in the case of the public schools, for example, I would love if in the absence of clear guidance from the state about how to reopen for every school in New York City to have access to an architect and a virologist to help them understand the best and safest way to reopen. Um, in the same vein, if I had another magic wand and, and you said I could have more than one, I think I would want for there to be greater mechanisms for holding private actors or private enterprise accountable for what they do. And as opposed to just sort of, it is private, therefore we're hands off, like recognizing that this whole divide between the public and private is completely constructed, amorphous, and you know, not necessarily inevitable. Like we decide what is public and what is private, and we should also recognize that what is nominally private has enormous implications for the public and vice versa. And because we understand that, we also understand that we need to hold private actors and private institutions accountable in the same way that we would hold public institutions and public actors accountable. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And the, the, um, as there's a heightened expectation on corporations as, uh, to you know, step in and fill the role that government isn't filling. And as they're embracing that role, um, accountability is certainly a, a concern, which is why many scholars are saying, let's just go back to, you know, shareholder primacy when, where the company was accountable to shareholders only, because uh, that is something that we, where we can actually hold companies accountable to some measurable um, yeah. uh, goal. Um, okay, so now for the crystal ball, where, where do you see us headed? I mean, I, I don't think because I have critiqued it that it's going to stop. I mean, I actually think we are going to see even more public-private partnership, um, more private individuals stepping in to fill roles that we would ordinarily expect government or public actors to fill. And, you know, I, I don't think that's a problem. I, I think it's sort of we need to be, I, I think, more thoughtful about where those interventions happen, how they happen, and to be clear-eyed about what the consequences are. And, you know, so for example, when the Me Too movement arose, this is now like almost two years, three years ago. Um, yeah, three years ago. And we have seen in its wake um, private enterprises, you know, making statements about what kinds of workplaces they want to have, like what their sort of expectations are for the workplace, even I think documenting it in very sort of explicit ways, um, you know, and that I think is all to the good. Um, but even as they sort of take those steps, articulate those norms, um, where those norms may actually help shape norms that exist in the public sphere, I think that's fine. But I think we ought to just be really thoughtful about whether 
these kinds of changes, um, whether they're expressive or, you know, more deeply rooted are actually the kinds of changes that we want to make. So, you know, for example, a number of financial institutions articulated their views about what was acceptable workplace conduct and, you know, the financial services industry, I think, was among the worst offenders when the Me Too movement began sort of identifying systemically problematic workplaces. Um, so, so it's great that they did that. But when you look at the rosters of those financial services firms, private equity, whatnot, the power dynamics and the power structures haven't changed at all. So they have articulated these new norms, but it is the same system of power that's operating them. Like there aren't women directors or they're very few. Um, women are perhaps isolated in the ranks of researchers and, you know, sort of lower level employees, but they're not filtering up to the top. And, and I think that's something that you have to think about are the norms that private enterprise, the norms that they're articulating in, in the space, um, in, in the absence of state pressure or state requirements to do so, um, are they simply just expressive as opposed to really fundamentally changing the nature of the workplace, changing the nature of the institution, changing the dynamics that actually cultivated the culture that they're now trying to address? And that to me is sort of, I think, what we need the crystal ball for. Like, are these really going, are, are these efforts really going to be meaningful or do we have to do something else, do something more? Well, thank you for that. And thank you for pointing out, you know, the alluding to the difference between cosmetic or symbolic reforms and really meaningful structural reforms that often have to account for uh, power differentials. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today and to share your work. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to come home to Berkeley. So go Bears. Thank you. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.